Coming up on this episode of East Screen, West Screen, we've got some news about crazy rich Asians. First look at Disney's Mulan, a super zombie cult hit out of Japan, and another cult movie uh, about Hong Kong. All of that, plus our movies this week, along with The Gods, The Last 49 Days, and The Meg. This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. And welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, sitting here in sunny South Florida. And coming to us from his news desk on the beach at Sanya Bay is Mr. Kevin Ma. Hey there, Paul. Hi, everyone. How you doing? All right. How you doing, sir? I'm all right. Busy. I'm yeah. very, very busy. Very busy. Uh, we are, I guess we're kind of, I mean, if depending on which calendar you go by, right, if we're going by the Chinese calendar. We are into autumn now, technically. Though I think yeah. most people in, at least in my part of the woods and probably your part of the woods too, uh, are still very hot and feel like it's summertime, right? Oh, definitely. I mean, we're still getting typhoons. Um, uh, quite a few is blowing all around Asia right now, especially Japan. Japan's getting pummeled this year by typhoons. Um, and yeah, I was just outside. I was I went out for dinner and we walked around, and you know it was a sweaty mess by the time I got back down to the MTR. So it's still very very hot, um, especially in Asia. You know, like I think not only was Japan getting pummeled by ty- typhoons, you got Korea and Japan and um, places up north getting hit with like 40 degrees Celsius weather. You know, it's, it's amazing. You know, global warming is not a myth. I would tell you that. Yeah. Well, it is hot. It is, uh, whether it's climate change or, uh, the wrath of some deity, I don't know, but I do know that when I go outside, uh, I feel like I need a shower almost immediately. So, but yeah, it, I'm looking forward to autumn and I'm looking forward to some of the movies, uh, coming in autumn. And, uh, we've had quite a few movies over the summer and we're still talking about, I guess, sort of the tail end of summer movies, but I wanted to catch up on a couple things before we get into that. Of course, we'd be remiss sure. if we didn't talk about uh, Terrace House opening new doors, which e. I finally finished. Uh, we, we we took the slow roll and just tried to do, you know, an episode a night or so, and we finally finished uh, the third season. And now I'm, I'm, you know, it's like I'm an addict. I'm going through withdrawals. I need a fix of something. And I actually pulled out my old <laughs> VPN my legal VPN, okay, that that I that I used to have a subscription for, and they still you can you, there's a free version where they'll get you like you know like 500 megabytes per month or something, just to test the waters to see, you know, if the Netflix ban hammer was still in force, and so I, I was able to get over to Netflix Japan, and I was able to see season four weekly episodes of Terrace House, you know, having slowly been rolled out, but uh, I could not play them. I got the you know the the traditional Netflix warning that I was using some kind of ad blocker or uh, domain name server changer thing, and that I needed to rectify that. So um, no Terrace House for us for a while, I guess. Well, I will recommend that 
you use um, a DNS, and then because the DNS allowed you to essentially hide yourself, um, and you can do this. What I use, I use Getflix uh, for America, uh, which isn't a VPN, so it can't really be read as a VPN. Um, but the thing is, you only you have to set it at a certain place in one place, one under one IP address, and then when you go to the manage uh, page, uh, you can actually choose your. Um, I'm not sure if they let you choose specific Netflix regions, but they let me go to Netflix US if I have to. But mm-hmm. I haven't tried. I don't want to risk it. But they do have that function where you can do region settings within get uh, within the manage page, and you can um, uh, see that because it's not quite a VPN. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I'm not up all up on that technical stuff, but it's a DNS, which is not like a VPN because you don't need to connect. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's at the end of the day, it's. I'm still scratching my head thinking, ah, Netflix, you could just, you know, upsell a global subscription, like, for double the price, and I'm no. sure a lot of people would it, it, buy into yeah, that. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not a global thing. I, I think that was a certain strategy. They Because they probably realized that weekly episodes don't... Because it's the same version thing with Joe McHale, uh, Joe McHale show. Hmm. They went to a six-episode binge because they realized that people were binging anyway instead of watching it weekly. So I'm guessing the whole effort of uploading weekly episode to work global is probably not worth the effort because people binge it anyway. I, you know, it's one of those internal... internal um, they, they have the data, right? They have yeah. the, the stats. They know how people watch the habits. And they just sort of do what is most convenient for them, I guess. I mean, the thing is, all the weekly episodes in Japan are subtitled. So it's not even a subtitling issue. Right, right. Yeah, I you know, it's... Uh, I don't know, because there are some shows... I mean, Game of Thrones, of course, is weekly. Um, there are other big shows. I, I know that the simulcasts on Crunchyroll for all the current summer anime series... Um, those are weekly, you know, because that's how they roll them out in Japan, and that's how they get rolled out here. So, I, you know, uh, come on, Netflix, just do it. Don't make us wait. And I actually preferred the Joel McHale stuff mm. weekly. I think we talked about that because it's, it's relevant to the week. You know, it's it's a little bit less relevant when it comes out a few weeks later. So, But that's just my preference, I guess. Yeah, um, it, we have all always argued about this whole like, international rights thing. Maybe they were, oh, maybe one thing is that it's the Fuji television thing that's limiting. Because uh, maybe they want Fuji to show it, to have it on TV first. Because Fuji is the main producer of the show and they sell it to Netflix, even though Netflix gets to air it first. Um, it could be that limit, who knows. Um, I mean, like I said, they have the stats, they... They have their own strategy, and whether we like it or not, this is the way they they roll it. Um, and and then when it comes to other program, it's one of those like, okay, they, they have to write to this, they have to write for this region, they don't have to write for that region. Um, and yeah, it, it's a real complicated mm. minefield that's like it's too hard to even try and comprehend. Yeah, and they could make it simple, but you know, I guess there's middlemen who need to be paid. Yeah, too many. Um, but, I, but I will recommend this um, because you do have a future trip to Japan planned. Download everything while you're there, and you can still watch it um, when you come back, even though you'll be in a different region. If you've downloaded it to your device, it will still be watchable, but you won't be able to um, airplay it to anything. Yeah. So that's no, what I'm going to I'm going to put on air, airplay mode and then watch it and then just delete it. Yeah, because um, that's the one thing I found. I, I carried over, I want to say... Three or four episodes from when I was in Japan um, that were the first part of the season three, and I could watch them, um, but I couldn't airplay them to the big TV. 
Um, and since we like to watch it on the big TV, we just ended up waiting to the till the season was released. So, but one question I do have: Do you know with regard to Inori Love Wagon? Is mm-hmm. is that weekly now, or is or are they holding those? They're not show. It's not the new season's not on yet. Right, and and so as they don't they don't run and it then, week by week anymore. Well, and then and when they did, they well no because the first season ended and they say oh they come back in the fall, so the the new season isn't even on air yet. And then when they did, what happened was that um, Japan first had it for I think four or five weeks, and then. Uh, Asia, well, at least in Hong Kong, then we get it. We got it weekly, so we got it. We we follow Japan's schedule, but five weeks behind. But mm. it was always a week per one week episode. And I don't know how did you guys get it in a in a big batch? Yeah, we got the whole thing all at once, and it was you like guys, a guys, long time yeah. later, from what I understand. Yeah, you so. guys got it way way after I was done. Like after I was done, I kept asking my friend in the states, like, "Did you watch it? Is it watching it? Did you watch it?" He's like, "No, it's not online yet." So I was watching it week to week to week to week. Yeah, I mean, I had the placeholder booked. I think you mentioned it back in January, and they had they had had a scheduled release for February, but then it, that got pushed back somehow, and I don't think um, they got it until like late March, I want to say, and it was all at once. So yeah, uh, maybe season two, um, maybe season two they'll do it do it a little differently. I'm not sure, mm. um, but there's no announcement yet when it's coming back, but it's. They, as far as I know, it is coming back, but they don't have a, a date yet. Because, um, like I said, back in the days when I watched it ten years ago, it was a weekly show year round in right. Japan. I mean, except for the big, except for holiday weeks, of course they don't, they take breaks. But it was generally a weekly show. But then Netflix, I guess, thing is a budget thing. They only signed up for what was it, thirteen or twenty or something like that. They only signed up for that one batch, and it didn't extend it anymore because you know because of all the logistics involved. But that was it. That was one season instead of the whole year-round show. Hmm. I look forward to that to when it returns as well. Um, speaking of stuff we've been catching up on over the summer, uh, we reviewed the film Animal World uh, a couple weeks back. But uh, when we did that, I had seen it. Kevin had not seen it. Um, but you've since seen it, right, Kevin? I wanted to get some thoughts on. Uh, animal world from you i i have um i can't say that like i was super in love with it i mean it's the same is that very same problem right like um it only won it's only one um one game whereas the original kaiji is is like free games i think and the same for a second film so you get more you get actual plot proportion that is actually moving along and then here, it's just one game drawn out for a really, really long time. Um, and then you got the clown thing. Like, it is exactly the same problem as... I think it epitomizes the problem with Chinese commercial cinema in general, which is that now they have a bigger budget, now that they're making more money, and they don't really know how to show it off. Or they show it off by, by adding in unnecessary special effects. So the entire clown thing is, is worthless to me. It's completely a waste. And that whole fantasy car chase that looks really expensive to produce, it, it's just a whole new money attitude. You know, like, oh, um, um, I got this huge batch of money. I have to spend it somehow or I have to be flashy. I'm, I'm eager to prove our technological innovation or our what we can do with our special effects. So here you go, here you go, here you go. It, it's too show-offy for no reason and it took up way too much of the film and it didn't add to the plot. Um, and it's not, like, it's not a character detail I was particularly interested in. So I just thought it was such a waste of 
time, really. Mm. I mean, it's not a terrible film. It's fine. I mean, the actual logic of the game is pretty clever, which even though it's probably from the actual comic book, it's clever enough. Um, and then Michael Douglas is like, he, I think he only spent like a, a three-day three day shooting phase, <laughs> and then he spent the other two or three days, you know, probably t- traveling around China and then went back to the States, like, collecting his money. It's like, it's kind of like the equivalent of those Japanese stars who used to go to Japan to make commercials and then don't tell anyone about it. Right. You know, you get a yeah. ton of money, spend a couple of days in Japan, and then go back like a million dollars richer. I think that's what that's the new going to China to do small roles in big movies is sort of the new you know making ads in Japan now. Mm. So it, it was such an unnecessary addition. Even though he was you know he's Michael Douglas is a very professional actor and he's great in the film for what little he does. He's great in it, and he he actually gives one of the more natural readings of. English lines that are usually way too stilted and don't have any real English style or any sort of English speaker, you know, voice in it. Um, but here, I mean, he he actually managed to make the lines sound natural, and he does a fine job doing what he does. Um, so that's that's not my complaint. I have no complaint about Michael Douglas at all. It's just that the rest of the film feels like a bit of a so what, you know. Hmm. I mean, have you heard any rumors as to uh, because it's it's obviously if you know the the Kaiji series and everything, there's obviously a lot more story to be told, and they left it wide open um, with a sort of mid credit hook, uh, and it did fairly well, I think, in terms of of revenue, right? Box office revenue, at least. I mean, especially if you're comparing it with stuff like Ashura. But any word as to is this a sequel in the works or is it on hold or? It actually didn't do that well. Okay. Um, the thing is, if you look at the the salaries of stars these days, and then you look at the the amount of special effects that was involved and art direction, all that stuff, it, it pro- I don't have an actual estimate on how many how much it costs, but it was definitely not a cheap movie to make, especially after they had to buy the rights. And um, these young stars now, as we talked about last week, the the salaries is getting out of control. Like Chris Wu, the the, the former Korean K-pop idol who was in uh, what's the big film he was in? Well, he didn't do Journey really, to the West, right? In Journey to the West, he commands more money than Donnie Yen. Wow! <laughs> you know how is that possible? Donnie needs Donnie needs to Donnie needs to be smacking down some agents or something. Yeah. So <laughs> so Lee Fong, it's around the uh, the same. I think he's around the same uh, that same amount. If not, just probably a little less. But I wouldn't be surprised if he's around that same amount. So, so you know, these movies are not cheap to make. And if you remember, when you when you look at the box office of a film, you could only imagine. Well, you have to sort of do the math and that, and realize that the producer or the producing studio, the investors, only get back about 45 percent of the box office. Um, and then you subtract. Well, that's after subtracting, and that's not even subtracting PNA yet, which is advertising or publicity and, and printing. So, so it's actually it's hard to really make a lot of money on commercial films unless you're making something that makes a ton of money, like Dying to Survive or Operation Red Sea or something like uh, uh, um, die, um, a romantic comedy or something. I mean, Animal World was definitely an expensive film to produce, so it probably wasn't the runaway hit that the producers wanted it to be. Um, you know, that's the thing with commercial cinema these days. Every time they think they have an I, what I call an IP, intellectual property, they have to set up a sequel. 
whether they assure that it will make money or not. And then when it doesn't, then they're just sort of sitting there kind of embarrassed. Like, oh, crap, we don't have money to make a second film, but we set up all this stuff for sequels. Um, and that's something we're going to talk about a bit later with Along the Gods. Uh, but then the thing is, they don't know whether it's going to do well, but they just sort of want to set up a sequel anyway for no good reason. You know, I think Cold War is uh, a huge, um, huge perpetrator of this. Um, so it's irresponsible. Hmm. You know, can't you just tell a complete story for once? Like, just tell it and then just leave it well alone. And then if you come back, then come back. But don't go and, like, put everyone on a cliffhanger, like, watching a TV show. Yeah. Good advice from scriptwriter Kevin Ma. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, yeah, we'll be talking, catching up on, you know, more shows and things uh, as we go forward. For now, though, let's get into what we normally do with this week's news. Okay, here at the news desk, uh, I've got a couple of stories, but Paul, you, I think you have a story of your own, right? Yeah, Kevin made the papers again. You're on a <laughs> roll, sir. What's up with this? Um, so, uh, so he doesn't have to toot his own horn here. I will help him. Uh, toot it a little bit. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, I, I didn't want to bring it up. <laughs> um, a recent New York Times article, which, I mean, I guess this is just in, not in the New York Times. This has kind of been a talking point in a couple media circles with regard to the film that's out this week, Crazy Rich Asians, which, uh, as I understand, it's doing fairly well, but there's been a little bit of uh, critical blowback in the representation of the types of Asians, I guess, in the film, and um, you were you were having been quoted in this article saying that something along the lines of that, um, you know, this uh, sh- showing showing off rich Asian people is not something new for especially people in the part of the world where you're in, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I was asked, um, so I was asked because the New York Times have have interviewed me before about the Trevisa case. Uh, a couple of months ago. Um, so when this came up, the writer is based in Hong Kong. He remembered me and he wanted to see what I think. He was definitely looking for a story um, about whether there's a lack of representation or diversity in the film. I couldn't say much. I haven't seen the film. I didn't read the book. Um, but, you know, I, I said something in the lines of, you know, I, it's hard to sell a film like this in Asia. It's, the box office prospect isn't looking good because, you know, it's instead of crazy rich Asians, we probably just call it crazy rich people mm. here on the side world. In fact, in Japan, actually, it's called crazy rich. They even took out Asians in the mm. name because they realized, like, why are we even saying Asians? Japanese people don't care about Asians. Um, that was a joke. That was a joke. Okay, that was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so, so I, I, I said first, I said, yeah, I mean, the thing is, in Asia, it might not do well because we already have four Tiny Times movies, um, you know, showing off. And that's four too I, many people. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Well, I would I, argue. I, I like those. I've seen, I've seen the first three. I still haven't seen four. Yeah. Um, actually, I, well, maybe three too many. But anyway, <laughs> the first is covered guilty pleasure for me. Um, but. Uh, uh, and and then you know showing off the new middle class is a whole trend in Chinese cinema. You know, it's like every other movie is about the middle class or sort of a new sort of. Even um, I was watching what a beautiful, beautiful moment or beautiful something. The one starring Guilin May is a, a remake of a Korean film, and that family is supposed to be kind of lower middle class. And even then, they lived in a nice house and they drive a car and everything. Like the whole like 
you know, new new money is a thing in China, and they're eager to show it off. Just like I said about in uh, when it comes to, in terms of animal world. Um, so for us Asians, we're like, well, what's the big deal? You know, why do we need to watch? And the thing is, the film doesn't have any big name stars that are known in Asia. Fresh off the boat is not a thing in in, in Asia. Yeah. I think Michelle you know, Yeoh is the probably the biggest. Michelle right? Yeoh is the yeah. Michelle Yeoh is the biggest name, but when did Michelle? I mean, if so, then Silverhawk should have been a huge hit. <laughs> So, um, Michelle Yeoh is a, is a famous name, but I, I doubt if she's not fighting anyone, I doubt she would draw people to the box office. And then I said, like, okay, look, the film, when you ask, when people whine about how it's supposed to show Singapore, but the thing is the film and the story, well, the book, as far as I know, the novel is, is told from the perspective of an Asian American character. So it's about the Asian American experience or about how Asian Amer- an Asian American character goes to Asia and sees Singapore. And in that case, you know, if she's in this rich Asian bubble, why would she see the diversity of Singapore when she is surrounded? The whole thing is about how her eye opens to this new rich um, society. I'm not going to say new money because Singapore isn't really new money um, or just Singapore society. Um, And two, you know, it's too much of a burden to ask one film to represent everything. Like, this is like the... um, when you send, it was like sending a kid to go up to the principal's office, and a kid just wants to talk about like, can I be excused from gym class? And then all the other students like ask him, oh wait, can you ask him to give us like tater tots for lunch? Or can you ask him to uh, uh, replace the teacher? Like everyone has a request for that one kid to talk to the principal about. But how many questions can that kid ask from the principal when all he wants to do is go up to excuse himself from gym class? Right. You know, so and I said that and that wasn't quoted in the story because that wasn't what the reporter was looking for. Um, and that's why I wasn't so eager to because I wasn't really helpful in getting what he was looking for. He had many other quotes that gave him the quotes he was looking for. And so I was like, well, OK, that's fine. It didn't help much. So I didn't really don't think I contribute much to the article. So that's why I didn't really toot my own horn about it, so to speak. Yeah, I think the article um, talks a little bit about another critic out of Singapore who's a bit vocal about the film because it doesn't Who hasn't rep- seen. Right, but it Who doesn't represent um, I guess uh, Indian Singaporeans and other West Asian Singaporeans and it's like you said it's you know it's it's one film and I think the problem is the semiotics here right it's you know it's like if you made a film called Crazy Rich Caucasians Okay, yeah, we know it's going to be about white people, but are they British people? Or are they French people? I mean, you know, it's the the problem is in that label, and you understand it's not going to be representative of everybody uh, because of that very specific title. So uh, I'm still excited to see it. Uh, there's also been quite a few articles, though, written about kind of the positiveness of this, uh, pretty much an all Asian, Asian American cast. And I think coming on the heels of this, we'll have to see how. Uh, Disney's Mulan performs as well. Um, But I'm hopeful it does well, and I'm hopeful that this does start a trend that we can, you know, see more diversity in in faces in cinema, Uh, because I think that's definitely something we need, at least here in Hollywood. Well, okay, I think think we're going to devote an entire episode just to Crazy Rich Asian when we finally (laughs) get to see it. I won't get to see it for another... 
two weeks or so because I'll be away in Japan. Um, but I feel like I, I feel I've so much, so much more to talk about when it comes to this film, and I haven't even seen it yet, so I don't feel like I could talk about it fairly. Right. Um, but there's going to be a because as an Amer- Asian American who also watches a lot of Asian cinema, but also wants Asian American representation in film, and I'm proud of Crazy Rich Asian, and I hope that it does well in America. I am not very pes- I'm not very optimistic about it how it would do anywhere else but it doesn't matter because it's about whether mainstream american society will accept this film um but there's so much so much to unpack here um and i, I think we can we can devote um probably the next episode um yep. to, to the entire episode, right? we don't even want to do we because it is the epitome of east green west green this film yes it is exactly what east green west green come together and i think we could devote an entire we could probably do like a three hour thing on it <laughs> um uh but yeah i i, I want to come back uh to this later when we watch the film all right sounds good sounds good um and so i guess leading out of that news too uh as, as i mentioned we've got uh, disney's mulan on the horizon which will be another um as so far rumored all asian cast there were early rumors that they were trying to do some things like throw in a a uh, white love interest and and things like that that have since been kind of pushed to the side and we'll have to wait and see the final product. But uh, they have released the first look at Disney's Mulan with the title character being played by, it's uh, Louis Fay, right, Kevin? Yeah, Louis Fay, yeah. Yeah, and it's just, it's basically just an image of her um, kind of looking at the camera, sword in hand kind of a thing. Nothing too revealing as yet, and I don't think we've gotten any other shots of the other players like uh, Donnie Yen or Gong Li yet. Uh, but, you know, it's something, a little bit of a teaser to, you know, bite us until the film gets a little bit closer and we get a, an actual trailer to see. So a lot kind of riding on this, and of course Disney's already in hot water for other stuff that they've done, so I think they have to tread very carefully uh, with this particular title. Um, that being said... Liu Yufei brings to mind Chinese Ghost Story remake, which <laughs> just makes me want to facepalm. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I, I've watched I've watched many Liu Yufei performances, and they all make me want to facepalm. So, God, why Liu Yufei? Can just make, couldn't they find someone who can actually make an expression? Hmm. Indeed, oh, indeed. God. So, yeah, you can you can just do a quick search out there, and uh, I'm sure that the Google will instantly come up with uh, the images that we're talking about. All right, uh, so let's head over some news from Japan. Yes, um, I want to talk a, a little bit about a, uh, a zombie film um, called One Cut of the da- Dead. Uh, it's a zomb- it, it premiered, I think, in Udine earlier this year, um, and it went to a couple of um, specialty fests around the world. Um, and then now it, and then it opened in Japan uh, late June. I want to say late June, but perhaps late... Eh, maybe early July, but anyway, it's become a huge hit. Uh, it's a it's a small indie film. It was made for next to no money. It was it was a crowdfunded by the cast, um, so it was practically made for no budget. Um, and it's a very amusing story. I, I I don't want to reveal too much of the story because the surprise is in the delight is really in finding out what it is. But one cut of the dead sounds like a zombie movie, and it kind of is. It starts out as a zombie movie. Um, it's this long 35-minute take that of what is supposed to be a zombie movie. But then the thing is, the real story actually starts after that 35 minutes um, long take. And I don't want to tell anymore because that's it. That's all I want to talk about. 
But the thing is, I would tell you that it's not really a horror film. Um, it completely does a 180 and turn, takes a real left turn into something else that is really great. And Japanese audiences have discovered it and they are loving it. So it opened in just two, two cinemas in Japan, in Tokyo. Um, and then last as of last week, it has expanded. A month after it opened, it has expanded to 180 screens across the nation. Um, because it's been selling out. Um, after it expanded in Tokyo, the, it kept selling out the cinemas in Tokyo. The, the cinemas in Osaka uh, kept selling out for days. In fact, um, the cinema where it first um, played, K-Cinema in Shinjuku District, um, until this week, they did 82 consecutive sold-out shows. Uh, and they were trying to go for 100, but then it snapped. The streak snapped earlier this week, but then it, it, and they can, it continued selling out again. Um, it's just a huge, huge hit. Um, and it's a film I like a lot. I've seen it already. It's a film that I like a lot. I didn't think that it's such a breakthrough, but I think people um, like the film so much that they're going back to see it again because it is a film that rewards you with a second viewing because once you get what happens, you're going to want to go back and see it again. And it is a huge, fun film to watch with a crowd um, at the uh, at the great, really great uh, crowd-pleasing moments. So if you do have a chance, this is a film that, you know, these type of hits are rare around the world even though it does happen in japan japan japanese cinemas tend to give films longer theatrical runs so that it gives more of a chance of having films that are sort of longer hits or films that extend uh um in cinemas for an extended amount of time especially if they're successful to build an audience because japanese audiences don't don't rush to cinemas to watch many films they're actually well i think per capita not a very well um, they only watch like 0.7 film a year or something like that. So to get a Jap- to get audiences in Japan to go out and see a film, it's really a lot rides on word of mouth and and what people you know where people recommending it to each other and things like that. So um, uh, it, it's it's already rare enough to find that in commercial films and but for indie films, indie films have really been struggling in Japan in the last um, decade or so. So to see to finally see an indie film really build. And having cinemas give it a chance to build that word of mouth success, it's really um, a great thing for the film. Is this something that you would recommend people to go and see the trailer for, or would the trailer spoil it? The trailer kind of spoils it, but I think trailer doesn't it doesn't reveal much. It does sort of reveal where it's going. Um, but it says the same thing, like the movie really starts after the zombie thing. So you know you know going in that is a zombie thing, even though it's not actually not that scary at all. And once you watch the rest of it, it's like zero scary. It's actually not even a horror film. Um, uh, because they're too cheap to do real big jump, uh, jump scare to the sound mix. But um, and, and so it's actually a, 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 a really fun film, but not in the way that horror, horror fans would expect. I know they're selling it at like Fright Fest or at like... Uh, a fantastic fest and like perhaps uh, horror festivals, but the thing is, if I mean, those people need to be warned that they're wa- not walking into a horror film and that they they won't get what they what they what they're expecting. But if you go in sort of blind, at least knowing that okay, it's gonna go beyond. If you're too scared or if you don't like what you've seen in the first thirty minutes, it is going to take a whole left turn to somewhere else, and I th- and it really makes you appreciate what you've seen before, whether you like it or not. Um, so it's a huge, it's a film that really rewards you with uh, uh, a repeat viewing, and I, and I enjoyed it a lot. It's a, it, it 
would make a really fun commercial film, but it just happens to be done as an indie film. Is it kind of along the lines of Shaun of the Dead, or even does it more diverge away from the zombie genre than Shaun of the Dead does? It's not a zombie film. It's not a zombie film. Yes, it's a zombie. It's, it's, it's a zombie thing in the beginning. It's a zombie section. Hmm. But it's not a zombie film, okay. and that's all I can say. Gotcha. Yeah, it's, it, it, yes, it, it's more in the line of Shaun of the Dead in terms of the crowd pleasing element. But once once you get past the zombie section, it is not a zombie film at all. That's all I can say. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Our final bit of news this week: uh, some additional cult movie news. Yeah, uh, you know it's it's a huge risk to open a video store these days anywhere in the world. Um, and, and especially in Hong Kong, where you know people don't even buy movies anymore, don't even want to pay for movies anymore. Um, uh, um, but a certain man has taken up the real brave task of opening a new video store, and not just a new video store, but a new video store that's devoted to Hong Kong cult films. So films that may not be real well known, but you know have a really close following. Films like Story of Ricky and Ironside. Um, he's opened a new shop in Prince Edward. The shop is called uh, Cult Movie Hong Kong. H K O G. Um, it is actually right in the center of a real crowded marketplace area, um, and I haven't been there myself yet. But uh, the place. Uh, sells DVDs of Hong Kong cult, cult films from everywhere. I think even like even like uh, Korean softcore porn, as I saw in the introduction video. Um, and this whole section devoted to memorabilia for films, like posters, um, lobby cards, and things like that. Um, I think it's a great idea. I mean, I am not one that's much for cult films, but I know we have listeners who are into it. Uh, I have Twitter followers who are into it. We have the Facebook group of Love Ish K Film has a lot of those fans, um, and there's certainly uh, a share a share of fans like that in Hong Kong, and um, it, it's it's just a really great place to you know for a niche such a niche market, I, and I hope that you know um, people would visit it and give it a, and you know give it some money and uh, help it help us stay operating. Yes, indeed, and I'm saying a prayer every single day this shop will stay open until I get back to Hong Kong. <laughs> um, because it's a very harsh market. I mean, we talked a couple of weeks ago about the fact that uh, Hong Kong Records, uh, when I was there just a few months ago, had downsized from their big shop at, o- at the Ocean Terminal Mall to literally something that was not much bigger than a closet. And now even that is going to be gone um, as you know, further news has rolled out of their closure. And just finding places that sell even new movies, let alone cult movies, um, is becoming more of a challenge. Uh, uh, some some listeners in the, or some uh, members in the Love HK Film Group have always, you know, they're always asking where can we go. And one of the places that usually comes up is the Sino Center, right, Sinwa Jongsam. But that that that's not they don't have anywhere near the selection that they used to have, right? Um, I was there a few months ago and. I mean, I remember going a decade ago, and they had there was a specialty shop for um, movie posters and press kits, and there was a specialty shop for um, old, rare Hong Kong movie DVDs, and all that stuff's gone now. It's I mean, there's mm-hmm. still shops for anime, and there's still shops for um, toys and video games and lots of stuff, but the movie stuff has just packed up and gone elsewhere because I guess people just don't care about it in Hong Kong. Um, 
at least enough to keep these shops, you know, in in the in the black. Yeah, here's the thing. I mean, Hong Kong, it's a small city. It has seven million people, whereas let's say Japan, you have 125 million people, and even just zero point zero zero one percent of those people may just be enough to keep a store like that open. But then when you only have zero point zero zero one percent of Hong Kong. And then, you know, then then how many people is that? I Sorry, I don't have to. I can't even do the math right now. That's only maybe a couple of hundred people. Um, so it's, it's, it's incredibly hard to do anything niche in Hong Kong because just the, the, the small number of population and, and, you know, what, what can you do? It's, it's a commercial city. It's a, it's a mainstream city. I, I've always said, I'll say it again, Hong Kong cinema Hong Kong entertainment, it's a hyper-commercial industry, which means they push out anything that's sort of out of the, or anything that's out of the ordinary is sort of get pushed to the fringes. And it's it's not, and it's almost, there is no middle ground. It's either super fringe or it's super mainstream. That anything in the middle don't please either side. And it's incredibly hard to do anything that's just slightly off-kilter or anything that's slightly off-mainstream. So, it's the reality of the city. What can I say? All right. I think that's going to wrap it up for the news this week. When we come back, we have Kevin's review of the sequel, along with the gods, the last 49 days. East Green, West Green. And welcome back. So up first, Kevin's review of Along with the Gods, The Last 49 Days. Yeah, um, so we talked about the first film uh, earlier this year. Along with the Gods is the big-budget um, Korean fantasy epic that's based on a webtoon, I believe. And the first film was called The Two Worlds, and I gave a real glowing review of it. Uh, Paul, did we ever talk? Did we ever hear your views of the, on the first film on the show? No, um, I did get to see it. It eventually made its way to Amazon, and uh, I got a chance to watch it there. I really, really liked it. Um, my wife and I watched it. We were both very entertained. Uh, we liked the characterizations. We liked the sort of dual stories that were going on. And I really liked the setup. I was I was very excited and looking forward to the sequel, which got very limited release here in the States theatrically, but apparently nowhere near me. So unfortunately, I have no chance to get out to watch it. Unfortunately, cinematically, I'm going to have to wait until it makes its way to another platform. Yeah, um, so the new film... Well, actually, the first... These two films were shot together at once so so it's not like it was fueled by the success of the first it was always meant to be two films and if um not trying to give away too many spoilers but just a few refresh of the first film the first film is about a fireman played by cha tae hoon who is um who dies maybe prematurely in a during an accident um and then he goes to um the underworld and he's immediately um, labeled as a paragon. Um, essentially, not many people can actually reincarnate out of the afterworld. So uh, I think only 48 or something, uh, at least among these three afterlife guardians. Um, but to become a par- to, to reincarnate as a paragon, um, you have to go past seven trials. And all these seven trials are stories from your life. It's, it's where these um, prosecutors, they question about certain aspects of your life, whether you truly have lived an up, 
a upright, righteous life, whether you truly do deserve to reincarnate. So it's about this journey of a man who who looks back on his own life, and it turns out that perhaps he's not as honorable as he was, but it turns out he was, and this whole journey of his redemption. So there's no real, and I like the first film a lot because it's not really about good versus evil. It's not a Lord of the Rings-esque thing. It's about a man who faces, who's who's really his own worst enemy. Um, and I really like that structure. I really like that idea, the concept of it. Um, and then of course you got these three guardians who have a stake in this because if they can um, reincarnate 49 people, then they can reincarnate themselves. But we don't know why it's so important to them or how they got here. So that's what the second film is about. Um, so quick look uh, at the story here. Uh, Su Hong, who was the brother of the Cha Tae-hoon character from the last film, um, and a v- uh, how do I give it spoiler free? At the end of the first film he is set up to be re- to be the next paragon and he's set up to be reincarnated. Um, yeah. and I, so I, I just, he, just, I'll just throw this out. If you've not seen the first film, probably many of the points Kevin's going to touch on is going to spoil some things in that film. So you'd probably want to stop here just okay. be on the safe side. So, okay. So there we go. So Su Hong, uh, and his three afterlife guardians, they journey through the seven hells in order for all of them to be reincarnated. Um, meanwhile, a household god, played by Don Lee from Train to Busan, defies all rules to help ordinary people in the living world. And the afterlife guardians' tragic lives on Earth a thousand years ago are uncovered one by one during their battle against the god in the human world. I just realized how many typos or grammatic- grammatical mistakes there were in this official synopsis. So um, I'm not saying I want the job, but I'm just saying they should, (laughs) whoever wrote this should look into it. Anyway, this is a direct continuation of the first film. So don't bother watching this if you haven't watched the first one. There is no beginning. The last film ended in sort of a cliffhanger. This film practically starts right after that. Um, It's not even like a new episode of TV. It's more like they come back from a commercial break. And it goes straight into it. Um, and I again, I'm trying not to spoil much about the first film. All I can say is that you know a certain character from the first film repeats the reincarnation process, and you think that's the process or that's the focus of the film, but it actually isn't. Um, the this time the free afterlife guardians, um, played by Hajun Wu um, as the leader, um, Juji Hoon as Hewa Mac, who is sort of the enforcer. And Kim Han Gi, um, the young actress who plays Lee Dok Chun, who is the other, um, he's, she's like the, uh, the the trainee, the intern, I guess. Um, and they kind of spend most of the movie separated um, because you have ha- the Ha Ju Win character, the leader, leading this reincarnation thing all over again, and then the other two they get sent to the human world to deal with this um, house god who is played by Don Lee. Um, so they're separated from most of the film. Um, and Donnie, he is a major part of the story and he gets a major subplot. But the problem is that subplot is more like a plot device that just gets the audience to the answer of a certain question. And that question, and I'm saying this because I, I'm saying this, this review is pretty much spoiler free of the first film because um, the question wasn't asked really that much in the first film. Um, so the answers may not be what you're looking for, depending a lot, a lot on not whether you like the first film, um, because the focus here is the backstory of the three guardians. 
but I find it really weird because the you know there's a real straightforward um, narrative in the first film, and that's the reincarnation of the firefighter character, and he is the he and he is not even mentioned once in the sequel. The entire most of the film is about the backstory of the Free Guardians, and if you really, really like the Free Guardians, perfect. That this is what you're looking for, and you're gonna love it. You will get the answers. But the question here I want to ask is if the film really needed another hundred forty minutes to answer all those questions. To me, not really. I think it could have easily run twenty minutes shorter if not for that overstuffed subplot with um, the house god. There's too much happening there. There's some jokes, there's some amusing things about how the the house god survives in the human world and how he takes care of this one family, how he's protecting this one family. Um, uh, and, oh yeah, if you really care about that old guy who keeps appearing randomly in the first film, then this is where everything gets answered. <laughs> Yay. Um, at least they didn't repeat the the seven trials from the first film there are only seven trials in hell and there are only so many times you can show it but the problem is that it feels like that this character has zero trace of his story in the first film here it's almost like oh yeah he's here and then oh yeah i got suddenly his his entire character his entire background doesn't matter to why he's there anymore um so nothing from the first film is mentioned and the character Su Hong is also super annoying, and you wonder why he's even deemed a paragon in the first place. Like, oh, why is he even here? Like, the way he is, like, did you just send him to down to wherever all those people are suffering in one of the hells and just, like, leave him alone and leave him there be over with? Um, there's no reason for him to even earn this process, but okay, whatever. Um, the few trials that we do get here are okay visually. Um, you know, they're never the worst part of the film. They. The film is made by Dexter Studios, which is owned um, and founded by director Kim Jong-hwa. He founded it to, or sorry, founded, oh my god. He found the studio to make um, to make his own films. He did Mr. Go with it. Mr. Go is the film with the uh, baseball playing gorilla. Um, and so it's his own studio, and it's very much like a, a showreel for the potential Chinese clients. And that that's what that's almost feels like what the entire franchise is. It's an advertisement for more Chinese clients to go to Dexter Studio. In fact, Dexter Studios, Chinese branch, is one of the biggest uh, special effects house in China. So um, they're definitely looking for more clients, and that's what this film feels like it's for. Um, however, there's a particular sequence that's supposed to be a homage to another film, except it feels more like a wanting esque spoof of it rather than a real homage because it's not homage if you just lift it directly from the film <laughs> i want to say directors it's not a homage if you lift the thing directly from the other film yeah we call that plagiarism people <laughs> yes it's plagiarism and it doesn't make it better if you make a few jokes along the way um, but yet, the editing is quite sophisticated. There are, um, are two major plots happening concurrently, and it, or actually, plus the flashbacks, so three different stories going on concurrently. Well, four, because there are two sets of flashbacks, so four stories going on concurrently, and it jumps back and forth pretty much with ease, but I feel like I could have been just perfectly fine if I stopped watching this film five minutes short of part one 
and I didn't have to look at part two. I wasn't really looking for those answers. I got my answer of the main story of the first film. I've stopped. I can stop there, and then I would live on without any worry. But you know, it's set up for the sequel. So if you're gonna watch it, you are gonna watch it. If you want to see it, you're gonna see it. And yet, at the end of this 280-minute film, there are more setups for a sequel. <laughs> yes. Sequels that you don't really want to see. It's like a Cold War set. It's like, can't just let it rest. Okay, we got the answers. We don't care anymore. But yet, they keep answering things that I didn't ask. And in that way, opening up for more sequel. What's the point? You've already, you've already milked this whole thing for what it's worth. You already spent 280 minutes milking this idea. I don't need any more. So that's why this second part feels more like an unnecessary cash grab than the first film even though both parts were shot in one go although asterisk um one of one of the two prosecutors um odaosu the actors uh he was actually replaced because he got me too'd so um all his scenes in the second film uh were reshot uh with a different actor um so it's not quote-unquote shot in one go so there's a whole there's a significant section of the film or a, a number a, a, a large number of scenes have to be reshot with a different actor kevin so do they not... do they make any acknowledgement of that in the film is it is he like playing a new actor playing the same character or a new prosecutor brought in or no it's just a new actor playing the same character okay. like they just ignore the entire thing like oh yeah he changed face they don't even notice the fact that he looks different Okay. They're just like, they're just like, oh yeah, here's these two, these two guys. They're back. And but one of them is like there, a different face. There's no plan to George Lucas, the first one, right? And I have <laughs> replace, no idea. Replace that actor in the first one. I don't know, because I bought, I bought the Blu-ray before they, this whole, well, I bought the, the Blu-ray came out in like April. So I bought it before even, he got me too. So I got, I got Odaosu. <laughs> but you never, you won't see Odaosu in the second film and they don't explain why, um, which is really odd. Um, and that's it. I mean, it's it's shot in one go, but you know, then you realize what this film was really made to do, which was to sell Dexter Studio, which is a bit of a ripoff. If you think about it, it's like okay, special effects is fine, but then you realize second film is a little bit of a waste of time. I'm so sorry, it's a bit of a waste of time. Did I enjoy Along the Gods as a whole? I remember um, the, at the end of the first film, I said, if they pull off the second part right, this could be a game changer for Korean cinema because this is a big thing. Um, it, it's big because it, it shows that Korea isn't just, they don't just waste special effects, that they can make good special effects movies, special effects movies that appeal to the heart, um, with a human element, universal message. And it's what China's been wanting to do for years. And Korea's pulled it off. Because Korea doesn't have a good track record of special effects films. They tend to be not very good. And I was thinking maybe this would be the one that changed it. But then it doesn't. It sort of ends with a bit of a... is a bit of a disappointment. But the whole but the whole thing, all 280 minutes of it, it is entertaining. It is grand. And the special effects are good. And I do stand by what I said about the first film, which is that if it's refreshing in that it's not about fighting monsters, it's about human nature, it's about characters, these character dynamics, how they affect each other's lives. It is it is sort of a melodrama done in a big epic scale, but it's woven into the actual 
story of the film rather than melodrama that weighs down the the, 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 the sort of fantasy section of the film. So in that sense, it is very refreshing, but it's not ends up not really being the game changer that it wants itself to be. Um, if you enjoy the first film, you definitely want to return to this world. Um, again, you should ask yourself first how much you care about those Guardian characters um, before you commit to part two. Um, if you're just if you haven't seen any of the films, um, then um, you watch it and then you ask yourself like, okay, how much do I care about these three guys that I want to keep watching? If you don't, you can stop. It's actually totally okay to stop. If you do, then go on. But um, you find it to be a very flawed continuation and um, not a particularly strong ending to what was a very strong beginning. Well, I, you know, I think for myself, I'm in kind of that second category because at the end of the first film, I was kind of curious about the backstories of the Guardians. Um, and, you know, in particular, the I think the Kim Hong-ji character um, and her story and her connection with, like, the head Guardian, how that all works. So I'm kind of, you know, more interested in that, more, much more so than the... Uh, then who is it the the Suhong character right the brother mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. <clears throat> for me his story was kind of laid out in the first one alongside of the Cha Tae-hun character and you know it's like okay now he's got to go through this uh, okay you know but we kind of got enough of him in the first one I don't know he wasn't that charismatic of a character for me I'd rather see I'd rather they said Cha Tae-hun or Kim Kim Ja-hong which was his character's name you got to come back and do it all again <laughs> You know, uh, or you know, the, bring in Junji Hoon or somebody, somebody more interesting. Because his brother served a purpose in the first one, but I didn't find him that appealing as a kind of a central focus character. So the fact that you're saying that he's kind of there, but he's not there, and that if you're more interested in the Guardians, you'll like this film more, um, makes me a bit more interested to see it. Um, mm. uh, but by the end of it, I think that you know, hey, it, it does sound like. Because some of the stuff they were doing in the first one, like the old man and, you know, like you said, the introduction of um, the Don Lee character, some of that stuff felt like they, oh, they were, you know, definitely setting some stuff up for the second part. But I don't know if it was, I was that interested in that per se. So, you know, I'll, I'll have to come back and report back in once I get a chance to, to see this. Um, but I still definitely do want to see it. But I still think the first one holds up so well as Mm -hmm. a special effects piece out of asia right and it's like you said not many films can can claim that because a lot of them are so very often brought down by either bad special effects or okay special effects but bad writing um so at least at the very least they can still say well the first one is really really good right yeah yeah um and you won't actually if you are fine with that main plot uh of the care of that first film you won't mind so much about just watching the first film you don't lose that much not watching the second film um the second film answers a lot of things but like i said it really depends on how much do you care about them being answered mm. and if you're a fan of the first one, i think paul i think knowing now what you think about the first film i think you will enjoy the second film um a lot as well So for our second film this week, a West screen film with a little bit of East screen spice, I guess. Uh, and that is The Meg. Uh, this is coming from director John Turtlelob. Turtle? 
Turtle Taub, if I'm saying that Turtle correctly. Top. Turtle Taub. Um, who's known for, uh, what is he known for? Uh, things like... Phenomenon. Phenomenon. And uh, uh, the Rush Hour TV show pilot episode that got canceled. And... Um, uh, you know, uh, Jericho, National Treasure, Book of Secrets, uh, Sorcerer's Apprentice, right? So he's been around. He's done some work, a uh, credible body of work. May not be everybody's favorite d- director, but he is here for The Meg. Uh, this is a story that is based off a novel written by Steve Alton, uh, who wrote the first novel back, I think, in late 1990s, 97, I think. Um, who is, in fact, a South Florida resident, and he lives not too far from where I live. And he's been all over the papers down here because of uh, his book that made it big now into a big Hollywood production. Uh, the story, when researchers from the research facility Mana One explore a newly discovered area of the Marianas Trench, they discover a megalodon, a prehistoric species of giant shark. When the research sub is damaged during their encounter with uh, the creature, the leadership of Mana One calls on Jonas Taylor, a washed-up rescue operations expert, to lead the rescue attempt. But the danger for Jonas and the science team is just beginning once the Meg gets accidentally released into temperate waters. So, as I said, based on a novel that's been around, uh, it's since spawned, like, I think, seven sequels in the novel series. So, uh, I guess if you're into big monster shark literature this is probably something you've known about uh my dad who i took to watch the movie said he'd read the original book i don't think he's read any of the sequels um (laughs) yeah it's something that has apparently been around in literature for quite a long time and you know it's a fairly fun summer shark movie i'm not big on summer shark movies of course jaws is a classic anything beyond that for me has kind of been uh, a moot point um never really got into the craziness of the piranha movies or stuff like piranha 3d um this is pg-13 so it's fairly light on violence as this kind of genre goes but i still saw parents bringing in young kids to this um and i was kind of like really you know it, it is a dinosaur technically and yeah kids are all about the dinosaurs today and the jurassic park and uh, they've got a big, you know, touring dinosaur exhibit that comes to the fairgrounds every year. Still, I was like, really, little kids? I I just don't know. Um, but, you know, everybody's got a different parenting style, I guess. Um, so the lead here of the main character, J- Jonas Taylor, is played by, uh, of course, Jason Statham, who is pretty much Jason Statham. Uh, he doesn't really do much for me. I know we said this when we talked about the Skyscraper Review I would have much preferred to see The Rock in this role, at least, um, because he's just more appealing as an action physical presence uh, than Statham is. That's just my own personal preference. I'm sure there are many fans out there who love Statham and will love him uh, in this role. He fulfills that role of action male lead uh, like you would expect. My question is, does this movie need action male lead in the role? And I came away saying, no, not really. We also have Li Bingbing, who plays a character named Zhang Suyin, head researcher at the facility called Mana One, and daughter of the facility's kind of overseer, uh, Dr. Zhang, played by Winston Chow. So a little bit of some China movie, Hong Kong movie connections here. Of course, Li Bingbing is, uh, I'm on record as saying, is my favorite of the Bingbings. Um, the other Bingbing, unfortunately, is in a world of trouble right now. We've talked about that. But Hong Kong film fans can look to movies like Cat and Mouse, back in 2003, World Without Thieves, Wait Till You're Older, Detective D, and The Mystery of the Phantom Flame. 
uh, all which are Andy Lau movies. So she's, you know, apparently in, in good circles with uh, Andy Lau. She's done some Hollywood stuff too, um, and a lots of other China stuff as well, but most notably of late uh, Transformers Age of Extinction in 2014, and this year's Seven Guardians of the Tomb. Please don't blame her for these movies, okay? She's got to pay some bills, I'm sure. Um, probably has a lot of taxes to pay. <laughs> blame the Asian, yeah. yeah. I mean, um, also, as I mentioned, Winston Chow is here from films like Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, The Song Sisters, um, 1911, and also Zong Koi, Snow Girl, and The Dark Crystal, both which were with uh, Lee Bing Bing as well. Most recently, I think I've seen him in um, Skip Trace, the Jackie Chan, uh, Johnny Knoxville film from 2016 and i think they're both great in the film the sort of three generation thing that they have going on at the science station so you've got uh, winston chow as the father lee bing bing as his daughter and then she has a daughter which for me was the show stealer newcomer um sophia kai or kai shuya who her only other credit that i could find is um, is the movie somewhere only we know kevin have you seen that one uh yeah that's the shooting late film isn't it oh my god that was so terrible yeah um, uh, she's got a credit in that i haven't seen that one yet um but so this is like uh i guess her big hollywood movie her first credit for a hollywood film and she's adorable in this movie and and you know it seemed like the audience that i was watching this with really kind of uh, you know got in line with that idea and it's a very strategic choice anytime you have a kid in a movie like this uh, but she handles it really really well and beyond that, it's a pretty diverse cast. Rain Wilson is the tech billionaire who's kind of funding everything. Uh, New Zealand actor Cliff Curtis is here as kind of the project lead. Uh, Ruby Rose here in kind of the typical technician sort of hacker character. Um, Paige Kennedy for some African-American comic relief, which I think was a little bit typecast the way they used his humor, but it still came out across as pretty funny. Um, but also of note, Robert Taylor of the Longmire, Netflix Longmire TV series is here as the doctor and Massey Oka from Heroes and Hawaii Five-O as one of the researchers. So, and, and some other casts as well, but a pretty big, diverse cast, um, which, you know, I pretty much enjoyed almost all of the interactions between them. Plot straightforward. I mean, you can see there's going to be some twists and scares thrown in. You can see those coming pretty far out. The humor is what I think keeps this moving for me and, and working as well as it does as kind of a summer action movie with a light touch um, overall. The um, interesting thing is that, they I mean, the Manawan Research Station and a lot of the characters there are all new. I haven't read the book, but I did you know, glance over a summary of it. And the Jonas Taylor character seems to be the central focus in the book. But beyond that, it's basically him sub-hunting uh, the Meg. So a lot of the stuff that's here is additional Hollywood script writing, the setting of the research center off the coast of China, and then sort of the final showdown at uh, the the Sanya the Sanya Bay area is uh, you know I think we know why that's there, but it works. It's it, they, <laughs> they've got some funny stuff uh, that's going on there, and they're poking some fun at uh, some other aspects, which uh, I think we'll talk about in just a minute um there is a mid-credits kind of epilogue thing that happens and in the end credits they actually play a cover of tony basil's mickey song and i i believe it's by a thai singer called pim who i'm not familiar with you know it's it's a summer 
chomp movie, I guess. Uh, if, if you weren't, you didn't get enough dinosaur action in uh, the new Jurassic World movie, uh, you've got this to chew on. Um, but as I said, for me, I really think this could have been a film without Statham. Uh, put Lee Bing Bing in the main role. Yes, we get the requisite shirtless Statham in one scene. Uh, and, you know, he's he's got the muscles and everything. But when you're talking about a shark of this size, that doesn't matter. Size doesn't matter, right, in, in this case. I, I would have preferred to see Lee Bing Bing as kind of an action heroine. I mean, she handles herself and what she's asked to do fine in most of the film. I just didn't think Statham was really necessary. I guess it's a name that people are going to go and pay summer prices for, though. Um, but at least her and Winston Chow and are given decent screen time. Masioka has a smaller role, um, but it's fun to see him here as well. There's an implied romance between the leads, between Statham and Li Bingbing, that I just I wasn't into. It didn't feel like they had a lot of chemistry, um, per se. Um, he did have a bit of chemistry... You know, and can they, they try to get a connection with him and the daughter character. And it's funny and cutesy in places. But really, I just, it kept me questioning, was this, was there a need for the sort of typical male action-centric hero? There was an opportunity here to branch out and do something a little bit different. I know that would take it even further away from what's in the book, but they're already quite far away from what's in the book. So uh, why not, why not go even that much more? Kevin, you've seen this? No, no, no! You I'm didn't. Sorry. You, did, you didn't I watch the man. No, I, I. You had much I, more important I, things to do, right? <laughs> yes, like not watching the man. <laughs> that was. <laughs> I couldn't get myself to get into it. I'm, I'm so sorry. Well, first of all, I had to do a recording. If you remember, we had a recording for a separate thing, and then I got rushed with another subtitling job. And I was also I had an emergency viewing of Devil Wears Prada because my coworker told me to watch it. So I was between the Devil Wears Prada and the make, and I chose Meryl Streep. Okay, well, there you have it, yes. and, uh, <laughs> but actually... I just can't get me yeah. to watch a Leaping Big Shark movie, I'm sorry. It's actually much better than you think it is. Not that it's if great. I, I'm just saying, if I didn't watch the Leaping Big Spider movie, I'm not watching the Leaping <laughs> Big Shark movie. <laughs> well, I, I, I have the Leaping Big Spider movie, I just haven't watched it yet, but, um... See, uh, see, see, see? <laughs> it's not because I don't intend to watch it, though. So... <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, it. I, I came away much more entertained than I thought it would be. I thought this would be kind of a drag to get through, and it actually wasn't. It, you know, like I said, the humor keeps it going through for most of it, and there's enough supporting cast interaction that I, for myself, I could look beyond um, Stoic Statham and, you know, m much of what he was doing. Um, so it was fine. If you're not averse to this kind of thing, um, I, I wouldn't say it's... I mean, it's it's maybe on par in terms of a little bit less than of than the violence level in something like the original Jaws, um, and if if you're okay with that, again, it's PG thirteen, so it's not rated R. You're not going to be seeing the level of gore that you see in something like Piranha three, and you know it's a pretty uh, tame movie, and there, there's no sexy time or anything like that. The worst you're going to see is a shirtless Jason Statham. And, you know, if that offends, you can avert your eyes. So, 
beyond that, you know, it's, again, it's pretty inoffensive and it's got some fun moments and watching the shark roll through Sanya Bay uh, is kind of funny as, you know, as, as a setting production there because China access, you think, Kevin? Um. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a co It's a co-production. It's co-produced in a very elaborate deal that I read about in the trades. It's a very elaborate um, co-production deal. Um, I think it's the the production. By the way, it costs one hundred and seventy-five million U.S. dollars to produce. Can you believe it? Um, but luckily for uh, I think Warner Brothers, they only shelled out half the money or so. So to them, the film's already done pretty well in the states. Um, and I think they get a very significant chunk of the Chinese uh, revenue. So to them, it's a winning deal. But $175 million. Does it look like a $175 million movie to you, Paul? I mean, it's got, it, you've got a couple elaborate sets in terms of the Manawan station and some of the underwater subs. You've got the, the big shark and some explosions and things in places. So. Uh, yeah, maybe that's pushing it a little bit. Um, I, I'm again. I haven't seen the latest Jurassic Park movie, but I wouldn't say it's on par with the first Jurassic Park in terms of all the tech and you know the the stuff that's on screen. Because a lot of times it's the shark. You're seeing images of the shark kind of under the surface, right? So yeah, I'm not sure. It's uh, maybe maybe it's there. <laughs> I you know I I I'd need to. Re- to rewatch it really uh, to give it an assessment but for sure I think it's definitely got that that last scene is you know definitely gonna pique some interest in uh, you know getting tourists over to to San to the Sanya Cove or Sanya Bay uh, area you know that which is becoming quite widely known as a luxury beach resort area which right. is, I guess one of the reasons they wanted to to focus on that so um, yeah, and, you know, there you have it. Uh, if you are, again, not scared of going in the water, again, you know, to check it out. You're listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. You have been listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabor of Snouser Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily LoveHKFilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. We also get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. If you would like to be part of the show, please do get in touch with us via the website at Comcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at Comcast. You can find us on email, eastscreen at gmail.com. And you can find us on Facebook at EastS. West S. As always, please do keep up with Kevin and all that he's doing, whether it's on his own site or in the papers or on the TV or who knows where next, maybe on the moon from a satellite. Well, who knows? Uh, but, sir, where can they find out more about you? Uh, maybe I'll be joining the Space Force. Who knows? <laughs> Space Force. Space Force. Um, no, before that, you can um, check me out. I'm on Twitter. I am at the Golden Rock. That's one word, the Golden Rock. Uh, you can read my writing on Cathay Pacific's 
and Cathay Dragon's Discovery and Silk Road magazine, respectively. I'm the entertainment editor there, and do flip to the last about 30 pages or so, and you will see my work. Um, I have a website called Asia in Cinema that I haven't updated, so I don't even know why I added to this section, but I do anyway because I'm paying for the server fee. Uh, and, you know, those have, you know, respective social media. I'm not even going to mention them. But what it has given me is an email address. You can email me at kevin at asiainsinema.com. All right. Excellent. Please do keep up with Kevin and also keep up with our friends over at the podcast on Fire Network. Our good friend, Mr. Brorson over there, recently invited us on to do a recording with both of us, uh, which is a rarity. We talked about uh, the... Uh, Louis Koo and Lao Ching Wan film Fantasia, which was big fun. And that should be coming out uh, probably not too near in the future, but uh, a little bit later. So you can keep your eyes peeled on the podcast on Fire Network for more news on that. Our next show, as he said, Kevin's probably going to be off in Japan for a bit. Uh, but it looks like we're going to be coming back to talk about crazy rich Asians. And maybe we'll get a Japan trip report as well. Uh, in the interim so can look forward to that until then uh, this has been the east green west green podcast saying we'll always need a bigger boat and we'll see you next time see you next time everybody Sweet way.